Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I'm in Barbados this week, attending the formal transition of Barbados to a parliamentary republic, and part of a small team advising Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley on a major new initiative entailing several dimensions. One is the digitization of tens of millions of pages of records dating back four centuries, many of which document the trade in enslaved people by the British. An additional component is architectural. Here this week was David Ajay and his team from Ajay Associates, who were planning a memorial to the ancestors, along with a new heritage district, including a museum that will present the history of this remarkable island nation from that long period of oppression up until its emergence this past week from the British Crown. My guest today is another member of our team, Audu Maikori Esquire, who traveled to Barbados along with Audu's colleague Raymond St. Martin, the founder and CEO of Asayo, a pioneering technology company. Lawrence M. Schindel, CEO of LMI Group International, is also here, and he and I are at work to assist in multiple extensions of the Prime Minister's expansive vision from technology to museum planning. Almost everything I've done in my life is about changing something because I, I believe that you're here on earth to make a change. I mean, that's why you're born. And if that change is just internal mm-hmm. and the world can't feel some of that, then it's almost like you never lived. That's Audu Maikori Esquire, born in Kaduna State, Nigeria, home of the storied Nok culture, who was a member of the Ham royal family of the Nok people. He was raised in Lagos and attended Adrao International School and King's College, before obtaining his law degree from the University of Jos in 1999 and his Bachelor of Laws from the law school Abuja. He was called to the Nigerian Bar Association 20 years ago and worked as an associate, then legal advisor, to the leasing company of Nigeria, among other assignments involved in the legal and regulatory aspects of privatization, representing Nigeria in a critical UNIDWA subcommittee. From his law school days onward, Audu was drawn to the music industry and in May 2007, co-organized the first Nigerian International Music Summit, attracting over 400 music industry stakeholders drawn from across Nigeria. He founded Chocolate City Limited with his brother Yahaya Makori and Paul Ekugo, which began presenting events and representing artists with recording and management contracts, including Jeremiah Gyan and rapper M.I. Abaga. He would go on to launch other companies under the Chocolate City banner and continues to promote new and proven talent in the music industry. Audu's social activism has been a thread throughout his life, including serving as part of the Enough is Enough campaign protesting corruption and violence, including the Southern Kaduna killings by suspected Fulani herdsmen who murdered over 250 men and women of Southern Kaduna origin. In March 2017, he was arrested and arraigned by the Kaduna state over alleged incitement to violence. But after bringing a case of unlawful arrest and abuse of his fundamental human rights, he prevailed in court with a major award for damages against the governor of Kaduna State and the Nigerian police force. Audu is a widely sought-after public speaker on entrepreneurship and youth development from MIT to Oxford to Kigali, Rwanda, and around the globe. And to round it out, he served as one of the three judges for the first season of Nigerian Idol. Audu, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. You've lived so many lives for a relatively young man, I say that based on my age, <laughs> and from being a leading light in the law, social activism, and the music industry, you've made such a difference 
in Nigeria and internationally. So tell us about this drive. Where does this drive come from? Well, thank you. Thanks, thanks for the, the kind words. But I think the, the drive really is a restlessness for change. Almost everything I've done in my life is about changing something because I, I believe that you're here on earth to make a change. I mean, that's why you're born. And if that change is just internal mm-hmm. and the world can't feel some of that, then it's almost like you never lived. We're in Barbados just as it's transitioned from being the United Kingdom's former colony mm. to a parliamentary republic. So as we watched the Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley make her amazing speech, mm. what are your feelings about the step just taken by the Barbadian people under Prime Minister Motley? I think it's bold. It's historic in the sense that this could have been done 55 years ago, to be honest. But it was just done now, at this time. Uh, and the time when the world is restless for change, uh, needs new leadership, new vision, and people who can think about leadership from a people's perspective and not from the kingly perspective that we're used to. So I think it's, it's amazing. Um, Leading to a speech, very passionate, but it was clear that it was a speech about the people of Barbados. It's about a global story, a global narrative about how Barbados is trying to move this negative thing to become positive. You know, sometimes you get caught up in the moment and you don't see that these challenges are basically stepping stones, opportunities to rethink and uh, change how you look at things. So I think uh, the Prime Minister has looked at it from a different perspective. She's carried the people along. Great work getting, uh, going on in Barbados. And I think it's just really about visioning. And she's able to not just have the vision, but find the right people to deliver. And that is what leadership is all about. And she's fearless. She's very educated Mm. in the law, in international affairs, and her voice is extraordinary. Amazing. Look, it's about the various lenses and the perspectives you can only learn from going through different, you know, um, rungs of development. So she's run for every office. She's won every office she's run for. She's at the highest office right now. So I think just from local government of the provinces all the way to being a minister, it's given her unique perspective. And now as the prime minister, she understands that legacy is everything. Yeah. So what kind of legacy does she want to leave? And I think she's going to leave an amazing legacy. And you and I are here to work with her on a project and support her vision, which amazing. I'll talk about another time. The African diaspora makes so many connections. And as a Nigerian today in the Caribbean who lives in Atlanta, mm. what cultural features of life in Barbados recall your upbringing in the Kaduna State? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> um, I spent the first five years in Kaduna and then yeah. I moved to Lagos. Basically grew up in Lagos. And Lagos is, I tell people, if you can survive in Lagos, you can survive anywhere. <laughs> yeah. It's New York on another level of madness. But I think the great thing about all these places that you're talking about is really around your self-effort. You know, some people grow up with a silver spoon you know, in the amount. Some people grow up into wealth. Some people grow up into poverty. But the end result is different depending on who the person is, the influences and, and things like that. I was brought up to be independent. I was brought up to believe in my ability to change my future. And I think that whether you be in Lagos, Barbados, Ghana, Mexico, it's the same thing. It's just about your effort, your belief, and your you being resolute in what drives you and what you want to achieve. And I think 
seeing what the people of Barbados have done here is quite inspiring because it's a small island, but they have a big voice. And they're not only speaking loud, they're acting loud, you know, and, and that's amazing. So it's not about size. So I think for me, what I draw out of that is that it's not how you're born. It's how you develop whatever you're born with and how you take advantage of that. Like David and Goliath. There's also a kind of a world weariness in Barbados as a function of centuries of yeah. struggle and strife and oppression that seems to be slightly lifted in these days of a new parliamentary republic. Mm -hmm. Coming from my own background in Nigeria, we also were um, colonized. I think the real difference is that Nigeria, Nigeria struggled, no doubt about that. But right from the beginning, it was clear that we wanted to break certain ties with the UK and when we did that. Posterity will judge these actions and I think it's going to be positive. As I mentioned in the intro, you've been very active in social justice and reform using your law background and education and your desire to improve things. What's your view of the current state of Nigeria? Nigeria is in a, it's not a great state, I'll be honest. And, and I think it's worse because of the capacity. Nigerians are great people, the country isn't great. It boils down to the system. Now, to be fair, if, if you see how Nigeria was kind of put together constitutionally, it was a motley association of people who didn't know each other. They came together and there was no process by which they, uh, they, they were integrated. Over the past 60 years we've tried, and I think there's a huge level of integration going on, but there's a failure in leadership. And I talk about leadership from the perspective of not just really people who are elected, but those who have businesses, entrepreneurs. I try to wield my leadership in the things that I do and what I control because, I mean, it's hypocritical to be talking about other people when you're a leader in your organization and your organization isn't doing well. And it isn't doing well because you are not leading, you're managing. So I think what we've had in Nigeria is leaders who just manage. It's really around things that people can see and say, oh, well, he built this road, this bridge. But it's more than that, it's by the people. And I always think that if you're in leadership positions and you're not thinking like the person, the average person on the street, you've totally lost it. So we have a leadership crisis. Next year, we'll be starting uh, the pre-election you know, frenzy. Uh, 2023 is the next presidential and gubernatorial elections. People are excited. I am cautious, uh, simply because unless there's a seismic shift in the direction, the caliber, the age, the thinking, the education, the background, the people who are going to lead. It might be the same thing all over again. Well, look, as an American, I have nothing to boast about. <laughs> in our political scene, yeah. in our fractiousness, in our divisions around values and ambitions and worldviews. So I think that's part of what's extraordinary to be in an island nation right now. Absolutely. The, has lit a match uh -huh. and there's a flame flickering and let's hope it continues to burn. Amen. As a lawyer and especially as a member of the Ham Royal family of the Nok people, could you share your thoughts about the restitution of Nok material to Nigeria from Western museums? This is a part of the advocacy that I'm quite, quite passionate about as well. The Nok culture suffered even internally in Nigeria, because there are three major tribes, if you, you will, and it is the House of Fulani, there's the Yoruba people and the Igbo people. Um, the people of Nok fall into something called the Middle Belt. 
which is a very gray area uh, because you're not quite north, but then you're not quite <laughs> evil and all that. And because of that, we're, we're classified as minorities. And because you're a minority, you do not have major share of mind or of budget to get things done. Uh, in 2015, I was part of a committee that was set up, 2012 actually, and the idea was to rebuild uh, some of the, the museums there. There was a national museum in Nock that was set up maybe in the early 60s. And we did do a bit of work and we we're trying to raise more money to do so. Just at that point, there was a change in the government and again, priorities shifted and that was kind of relegated. Since then, there have also been loads of skirmishes. Indeed, there was a point in time between 2016 and now that probably four or 5,000 people had been killed by Fulani herdsmen or suspected Fulani herdsmen. And that kind of created, uh, you know, it was, it's not the right uh, so environment for people to come and say, I won't, won't invest. Because obviously, if you're investing in building a monument like that, protection yeah. and preservation is key. So it might not be the right time. And that's why when you think about how life works, everything cascades. Everything is affected by every other thing. So it's almost like we need to sort out the right leadership to create the right security, to create the right investment um, climate for places like the North Museum for, for restitution to happen. Because you find that traditionally there's always been that pushback from the Western institutions and saying, oh, well, you guys don't have facilities or you, you can't protect them. Yeah, but it's ours. <laughs> Just send it back. We, we'll find a means to. That's one part of the ar argument. But the other thing is that clearly preserving that history is key, and there's no point bringing them just for bragging rights. So it has to be the answer is in between. It's really having halfway house of sorts where you can house these things. And this is what Sir David Ajay is doing in Benin City for yes. the Benin material. Precisely. He's building a pavilion in place of the future museum, mm -hmm. precisely to house. Benin artifacts that are being restituted from Western museums by Germany, Amazing. France, by U.S. museums soon to come. So what you're saying is that maybe there's a way in this situation around the Nock Museum to find a similar approach? Definitely. It's touted to be the oldest sub-Saharan civilization. So why aren't we studying that? You know, why aren't we understanding exactly where these people came from? Why was the art so amazing? And what, what made them skip, I think it was the Iron of the Bronze Age, that they literally skipped and moved on to the next one. What was it about these people? Um, this needs to be studied, and obviously you need funding and the right support to do so. So it's something that we're still battling. It won't stop. And I think it's something that, that definitely will be of benefit, not just to the people of North or Nigeria. It's a global phenomenon. Of course. All right. Did you see Black Panther? Yep. Yeah. So as an authentic person as opposed to an actor, mm. vested with emotional, intellectual, heritage connections to mm -hmm. looted material. How do you feel when you go into a museum and see knock material today that's not in Nigeria? It's, um, I'll be honest, I, 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 I don't feel as bad as I used to, simply because I understand that there's a politics in that. And there's also the question about our preparedness to take possession of those things. Knock art has probably been one of the most uh, illegally looted artworks. I mean, at the time you go to, on eBay and you find Knock piece, $20,000. You know, people are selling it openly. And that only happened because as Africans, we traded our traditional beliefs for another man's culture. For the people, they don't feel a connection to it. 
Right. In fact, they're told that, oh, these things are evil things. <laughs> you know, so don't bring them to the house. Right. Some ritual. The people aren't ready. And that, that is why sensitization, uh, education, and also getting the right facilities to explain, right, to connect these things is key. Oh, returning to your other passion, the music industry, can you tell us a bit about your label and what you're looking for in emerging musical talent? To be honest, I don't run the label anymore. Um, but when we started the label about 17 years ago, what I seen, again, back, back, back to what drives me, is that I saw that there were tons of talented young Nigerians, but they didn't have the platform to grow or to be discovered. So it really started in 2000. I mean, it started in university. That's a whole conversation. But, but more recently, I used to work in a law firm it's called Chief Afe Babalola SAN, Senior Advocate, which is like a QC. And it was a it was a nine to ten <laughs> job. Yeah. No, no, so it was a seven to ten, honestly. As opposed to nine to five. Nine to five, right. yeah. And um, no leisure. But one of the things I found is that each week every weekend when we hung out with, with friends, we would have great conversations about everything from time travel to uh, Benin bronze heads and things and no one was recording them. So a buddy of mine, Paul, decided to start something called the Guild of Artists and Poets. Now, through the gap that we started working with different artists, visual, musicians, and things like that, and then we decided that we couldn't run it from the offerings, in quote, that we took every Sunday. Because every Sunday we had this meeting, we'd have 30, 40 people. And we got in this huge circle and we would be talking about these issues. Sounds like a much better version of Clubhouse. <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> a more physical space, yeah. After each meeting, we had a hat, and the traditional Nigerian hat, we would pass it. It was for offerings, so people put $10, you know, things like that. And then we would use that to fund the next meeting. In that process, we started finding some really amazing artists, but they needed to be funded. Yeah. Because art does not grow. It takes cash to care. Yes. So... We set up Chocolate City to do that, to fund, manage, and promote the best talent, knowing that if they had the right platform, they, they could easily be top three, top five on the continent. Uh, so that was our initial target for the first five years. And what we did was work with really amazing talent. My personal preference is if you can play some kind of instrument, because I think it makes all the difference. Uh, so the first couple of artists that we did were either producers, percussionists, uh, played one instrument or the other. And I think uh, in five years, we basically kind of surpassed our wildest imaginations. Unfortunately, not on the, money, <laughs> not on the monetary side, but, but we had because we'd had top 10 hits. We'd sold a couple million records, but the business was tough. Yeah. We, and it is still a really tough business anyway. What are some of the intellectual property issues that await resolution to protect recording artists in Nigeria in particular? There are quite a few issues, but primarily it had to do with copyright infringement. I think it's also a total lack of understanding and or respect for copyrights as a whole. Early on in my career, I think as way back as 2005, a telecom basically took some of our music and used it for an advert. And it was a back and forth, okay, we'll take your music off the platform, yeah. blah, 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 and all that. But eventually it got resolved. So there was such a lack of understanding or respect for IP. Most recently, it's been about how do you make sure that you get royalties of the records that you're selling? 
and in 2008 we released an album by an artist called M.I. Still probably one of the greatest hip-hop artists on the continent until date. And uh, it was, the album's called Talk About It. It sold 30,000 copies in less than 30 minutes. It came out, there was so much of a demand for it. Probably the most successful commercial hip-hop artist in Nigeria and on the continent as well. Six months later, no royalties. Mm. And when we'd ask it, like, oh, well, you guys just sold 10,000 copies. <laughs> but meanwhile, they'd printed over 2 million copies in that period. The 30,000 records that were sold, we literally, oh, we just printed this off the press. We're dropping it at the um, depot and it was picked up. Uh, for context, the price of a compact disc at the time was 200 naira. 200 naira would be the equivalent of, say, $1, maybe? $2, yeah. And then you would go to buy like a Sony rewritable disc or one of those, yeah, and it was 200 naira as well. Piracy was the easiest thing imaginable. Easiest thing, and that meant that our music really had no value. You weren't selling anything. So that's sort of what the landscape was, and I got involved in a lot of the copyright advocacy before to establish a collecting management organization, which later became the Copyright Society of Nigeria. Court injunctions, protests, just trying to make sure that even the radio stations were paying royalties. So a lot of that has changed. I think there's a better understanding, but it's still murky. How is the industry faring in Nigeria given the streaming platforms? How is that affecting versus compact discs and the way it was managed in the past now that we can have bit streams we can trail and track? It's changed quite a few things. Uh, just for context, it used to be tapes. Then it was bootlegged vinyl, or rather it was vinyl, then tapes. And then it became um, CDs, and then it became MP3s. And what you do is you'd find the places in Lagos and parts of Nigeria where you'd go, and then they would put two hundred songs, and you pay fifteen naira for two hundred songs. So literally, the music was free. Um, and then it now mer morphed to downloads from telco. So you could literally download the songs, but data was too expensive, and then now streaming is here. Speaking about the numbers. A report that I saw earlier this year shows that 75 to 80 percent of the downloads of streams of Nigerian music come from the U.S. and Europe. 75 percent are not yeah. in Nigeria. They yeah. are U.S. and European they, listeners. Yeah. yeah, they are. How do they come to know about the music, I guess, <laughs> is my question. That's what's so amazing about it, is that African music has never had mainstream publicity or marketing. So it's always related to the, oh, it's the world album right you know that that kind of thing but with streaming that has changed because when you think about how social media interacts on a global basis you'll find sometimes that a, a topic that's trending in nigeria is trending globally as well and vice versa so what has happened now is that there's a broader connection people can access and see the content and listen to it so for context there's a record we released last year a song called love one tint so it's l-o-v-e N-W-A-N-T-I-T-I. -T -I. An artist called CK, which we signed in 2016 or so. Producer, songwriter. So we released a song, it probably did about 50 million streams on all platforms, which was a great song. But just at the point we were about to release the, the track, our A&R team said, look, let's do a remix. So let's feature two other artists, one from Lagos, one from Ghana. 
and it took off quite well. Did well on YouTube, maybe 25 million views on YouTube, great. And then all of a sudden, in August of this year, the song blew up all over again through TikTok. This kid grew from a million monthly listeners yeah. to 33.4 monthly listeners in literally two months, right? He has more followers than Beyonce. He's probably like maybe number top 50 artists on Spotify listenership. The data shows clearly that less than 15% of that is coming from the continent as a whole. So it's really now become an international global sound. And I think that's what's amazing about it is that with the right platforms, that kind of genre has yeah, on global That's scale. amazing. That still isn't enough. For me personally speaking, and we've been having conversations around building local distribution platforms because Africa is 1.2 billion people, 70% are below the ages of 35. So think about how many more streams that could have been, how many more concerts and shows and merchandise and things you could sell along that. So it's really around, around building platforms. It's nice that we have Apple, we have all these global platforms, but they're not affordable to the average African. So being able to find a solution that is based on local currency and people can exchange, like a global exchange for African currencies, not dollarized will change everything because then more people can afford it and stream a bit more music. As the Chinese now are plowing so much investment into Africa, the U.S. has fallen behind, European nations are as well. Yet you have in Africa the capacity to dominate so much in the music industry, in the visual arts, in travel and tourism, all these worlds that need that help of a currency model and a basis for access that is Mm -hmm. lacking. You were born into a royal family, and you met another prince this past week, the Prince, <laughs> the prince of Wales. So what was your impression of his state of mind as he's watching another former colony declare independence from the crown? His coming shows his mind state. His attending the event itself and you know how, how involved he was in every part of the ceremony is good. But I think it also marks a whole new shift in how countries are beginning to move. Gone are those days where many countries, colonized or otherwise, uh, look to the traditional leaders for guidance and you know, for direction. Those days are gone. And I think some of the, the issues, I mean, we talked about how China's really making strong pathways into Africa. It's simply because they're giving an alternative that that the former allies are not giving. And I think it's going to be crucial for any kind of uh, foreign policy to begin to think about it from the perspective of the, these nations. What do they really want? And it's not really around just giving the welfare packages and the funding and the, the research. Or what can we extract from them? Yeah, it's always extractive. So it has to be collaborative. Uh, unless that changes, there'll be much more. And I think that Africa clearly, population-wise, is in the right trajectory. We just need to create the right jobs and the opportunities for the young people. And I think that the, the lot will change, definitely. Those are great words to close on, Adu. Thank you for making time to be on the podcast today. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you so much, Max. <laughs> We've been speaking today with Audu Mykori Esquire. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. <laughs>